Man of Steel, Answers Insight Commentary, Breaking News, DC Cinematic Universe Roadmap, announced. I have so many questions. Then of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and how that affects the anticipated DC Cinematic Universe. In this special episode recorded October 15th, I interrupt our regularly scheduled program to discuss the major announcements made by Warner Brothers CEO Kevin Sujihara in an investor conference laying out the titles and the dates of the DC Cinematic Universe until 2020. These are my raw and uncut reactions and ramblings to the news as soon as I could get to a microphone. I'm still in the postpartum separation after a series of weddings, births, and New York Comic Con So I haven't been on the mic in weeks. That said, today's been a great day between Android L and the Nexus announcements, watching Flash yesterday, and of course the announcement today that we're going to discuss. So I apologize in advance if this is a little unpolished, but I hope you're as excited as I am. So let's just start off with an overview. We have 10 films explicitly announced, including standalone, untitled Batman and Superman films, yet to be calendared. We got two Justice League films directed by Snyder, five character films who are all Justice League members, Wonder Woman, Flash, Aquaman, Cyborg, and the Green Lantern. Shazam might be part of the shared universe and the League, but it's kind of uncertain. It's the only film that's being produced by New Line Cinema as opposed to Warner Brothers Pictures, so there's some uncertainty there. The first film that we'll be seeing after Batman v Superman is Suicide Squad, while Wonder Woman will lead us into the Justice League. Basically, it's two comic book movies a year for the next five years, with the possibility of Batman and Superman films being added to the present calendar, or perhaps starting in 2021 and beyond. It's a progressive and exciting lineup, with most of what you want and expect, but some surprises. And of course, Superman and Batman being held in reserve. Man oh man, consider what the world's finest movie would mean after the DCCU of this scope and breadth has been established. They'd truly be the world's finest and not just the world's only. So let's go over the films one by one. First up, we've got Suicide Squad, directed by David Ayer. David Ayer is known for his gritty, realistic work. Um, His film Fury just released. It's a remarkable World War II spec ops film. You probably know his writing from Training Day or his writing and direction from End of Watch. He's just about pitch perfect to bring the Suicide Squad to life, so long as he gets a little help bringing their trademark dark humor to the story. If you're not familiar, the Suicide Squad or Task Force X are typically criminals that we'd call supervillains, but not necessarily super-powered, but oftentimes they are. These incarcerated super-criminals are drafted into a secret military covert ops group that shaves time off their sentences 
with successful missions, but they're considered expendable due to their status as criminals. You can watch the Justice League Unlimited episode called Task Force X, or the Arrow episode called Suicide Squad, or the recent direct-to-video Assault on Arkham for a taste of the team. Gail Simone did a comic book run of a similar flavor with a team of villain protagonists called Secret Six, which in my opinion is a must-read if you kind of want to get the flavor of this kind of team or arrangement that we're going to be getting. Some additional rumor rumblings. Last week, Latino Review shared what they believed to be the supervillains who will compose the WB Suicide Squad. As with all rumors, you take it with a grain of salt. First, we've got Blockbuster. He's a super strong, hulking, odd-looking Batman villain. You may know that he had a history with Nightwing. We'll leave it at that. Then you've got Multiplex. He's a Firestorm villain seen in last night's episode of Flash. He can replicate himself. We've got Jakuli, who's an obscure speedster. We've got Mindboggler, a telepath I've never heard of. And then we've got our three leads, at least according to this Latino review rumor. We've got Harkness, who's a spin on Captain Boomerang, a Flash villain whose real name is Digger Harkness. Typically, he's Australian. He throws boomerangs. But here, the focus is on thrown weapons rather than boomerangs and the Aussiness. Next up, we've got Vixen. She's got animal abilities. And you may remember her as being on a number of Justice League teams. And she rose in popularity on the DCAU show, The Justice League Unlimited. More on that later. Lastly, we've got Deadshot, the team leader and an expert marksman. What's interesting is this film may act as a palate cleanser after Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. There you've got a dawning, a light, heroes, epic scale. But here, we've got the dark. We've got the small. We've got the contrast, uh, allowing us to see the light, to see the epic. And in fact, if you look at the overall slate, there is a repeating pattern of light, then dark, then epic event. And we've also got a good alteration between bigger stories and smaller stories. So the overall arcing calendar actually does a good job of having the stories and the themes and the different characters reinforce each other and building a large universe with uh, a lot of breadth and a lot of depth. Superficially, it may seem like a really weird step. It's almost like DC's version of Guardians of the Galaxy. Not in the sense of fun and humor, but in the oddball pairing of this team amidst traditional comic giants. Now, humor-wise, Ayer is not that guy, but we can expect an almost documentary-like veracity to the DCCU. Now, what's also interesting is that the above list of characters includes explicit powers, which suggests that there have been metahumans in the DCCU prior to Superman, but they may have been under wraps and incarcerated or concealed by the DEO or Argus or Checkmate or whatever agency they choose to use in the DCCU. Prior to this, I had always assumed that the Suicide Squad would be simply non-powered individuals, but this gives us a different insight into what's happening behind the scenes. The biggest insight that Suicide Squad provides to us is that there is a dark side to the government in the DCCU. There are shadow elements, and therefore any of the rules of engagement are going to be bent or broken so far as this shadow government is concerned. Now next up we have Wonder Woman starring Gal Gadot. 
And this is something that fans have been clamoring for, wishing for, dreaming of for years and years. The press release explicitly mentions Gadot, meaning that they're committed and confident in her, rather than hedging their bets and waiting for her reception in Batman v Superman. Wonder Woman follows their marquee characters. It features a female lead, and it beats Batman to a solo film in this universe. Her world will be fully built so that the Trinity can be completely established by the time we get to the Justice League. It's been speculated to be a summer movie based on prior date announcements, and it positions well more than a month after an untitled Marvel movie and nearly a month before Fantastic Four 2, which opens two weeks before Guardians 2. That gives it every opportunity to succeed and stand on its own two feet. As you may have seen in the blog or other movie news, Batman v Superman producer Charles Roven recently commented that Wonder Woman is expected to be a demigod, which is the new 52 origin compared to the tradition of Wonder Woman being formed of clay. We don't know whether Roven is speaking explicitly about a known or proposed script or development Bible or something canonical along those lines, or whether he's simply using the idea based on his familiarity with the New 52. It's completely plausible that somebody at some point said, to do your job, you've got to read this, and handed him the Jeff Johns New 52 Justice League reboot or the Azarello Wonder Woman New 52 reboot. And Rovin is merely referring to that. I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm just saying that there's some room for interpretation and that this hasn't been strictly determined yet. Um, although that is the way that we should take his comments at face value. Taking his comments at face value, it appears that Wonder Woman is going to be a creature of myth and that they're going to be introducing a major element of magic into the DCCU. As I've been talking about in this progression of films, thematically, the world of the DCCU just keeps expanding by leaps and bounds. With Batman v Superman, we know that there's a shadow world within the city of Gotham, where the Bat resides. And then in Suicide Squad, we know that there's a shadow government using indentured prisoners as expendable covert operatives. By the time we reach Wonder Woman and the Amazons, we're going to learn that there's a world of myth and magic that's been hidden from the eyes of mankind and hidden in their history books. Yet the progression from film to film goes from city to a nation to a world, gradually pulling the audience into a full-on DCCU. We only got a handful of films before we get to the Justice League, but you can already see how much work is going to be done by the time we get there. So... Wonder Woman is introducing magic into the DCCU. How does magic affect Superman? We will talk about it on our regularly scheduled program, but the short version is that magic affects Superman just like everyone else. Superman is as susceptible to magic as anyone else, but he is not allergic to magic or especially weak to magic. We'll certainly hash that out in the upcoming episodes, which have been pre-recorded before this one. In terms of power specialization and speciation, Wonder Woman carries with her many of the boosted stats that Superman does, but with a totally different background, mindset, and life experiences. It's going to be interesting to see whether she has flight or some of her more esoteric powers. But like I said again, this is a this film is history in the making. It's something that the world has been waiting for for decades. And so long as they can bring together the promise of the film 
And so long as audiences are willing to have open minds, this movie is going to be an event unto itself. All right. So we've seen the Man of Steel. We get to see Batman and Superman rumble. We get a palate cleanser with the Suicide Squad. We finish off the Trinity with Wonder Woman, opening the DCCU up to a greater world of magic. And then we get into the Justice League, the big event. Except now we've been told it's Justice League Part 1, directed by Zack Snyder with Affleck, Cavill, and Adams reprising their roles. The press release specifically names their talent. Snyder is directing both this and he's attached to Part 2. And if this Justice League has all those other characters in it as we're expecting it to, he gets first crack at their performances and their visual effects, and the language in which we'll be seeing them. So we have this director, who is a good director, but everybody always emphasizes his visual style. We get this director with his vis- his powerful and effective visual style, really helping to define the Justice League. You can tell that Zack Snyder has already been thinking about the interactions between the characters. You may remember that just maybe a couple months or weeks ago, He called into a radio show to defend Aquaman and how he could be effective against Superman, talking about how the Trident is actually able to maybe draw blood from Superman. So we already have a director that's trying to show honor and interest to all the characters. He's not going to forget that Superman is the one that got him there. If we follow the theme that I mentioned for Wonder Woman, by the time we have a league, we're talking about a world of heroes. It's interesting that much of the casting in the later solo films has been mentioned, most likely because they'll be making appearances, if not co-starring, in this ensemble film. I believe the story will focus on the marquee Trinity characters. However, I expect everyone to be respected on camera. You gotta remember that Days of Future Past had dozens of unique named characters. 25 of them were featured on Empire Magazine covers. Yet that story ultimately boiled down to a focused few, and they pulled it off marvelously. No pun intended. Snyder has considerable experience working with ensemble casts, from Watchmen to Sucker Punch. Irrespective of whether you appreciate those stories or not, the characters within them were memorable and to this day inspire loyalty, cosplay, and just stand out in the mind as iconic. So I am totally on board with Snyder directing both Justice League films as long as he gets a great script to work with. The fact that it's a part one so far is an interesting title. It implies a larger, at least two-part story that has become the WB's bread and butter and trademark talent. From The Matrix to Harry Potter to The Hobbit and so on, if there's any studio that knows how to do a part one, part two, it's the WB. Now, another thing about this roadmap By the time we get to Justice League, it will have been preceded by four films. Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, and Wonder Woman. That's only one short of Marvel's The Avengers. And I strongly suspect that Suicide Squad will do way more world building for the DCCU than The Incredible Hulk did for the MCU. One last quick note, again based on those speculated dates, Justice League comes only two weeks after an unspecified Marvel movie, so there may be some scheduled shuffling around that date from either or both parties, but at the end of the day, I still think it's pretty much a lock for that general zone. 
Now next we go into The Flash, starring Ezra Miller. As you're well aware from my other episodes, I hold The Flash in high esteem. This this announcement definitively and finally seals the deal on the separation between the DC TV and the DCCU. Uh, not that it hadn't been confirmed before. Jeff Johns had announced publicly during Flash's press junket that the two would never be combined. Yet, nonetheless, it's important that the statement gets out there so people's expectations aren't misplaced. By the time this film comes out, the show will have been running for four years, it will have a solid audience, and so there should be limited confusion. I am definitely happy to have The Flash on film. His stature is such that he's the first to arise after the Trinity. The WB is showing confidence in The Flash that he's able to sustain multiple properties in multiple mediums, like Superman and like Batman have done for decades. Only a handful of superheroes can say that they've been on TV and in a feature film on or around the same time. Now, I know nothing about Ezra Miller, but he's 10 years younger than Cavill, so he seems to be intended to be a new or younger hero. Both he and Cyborg appear after Justice League, I think we can assume that they will be a part of it, but we don't know. A question that leaps to the minds of many fans is which Flash will Ezra be expected to play? Jay Garrick, Barry Allen, Wally West, Bart Allen, or even somebody new? You know that I've professed my love for Wally, but in this instance, I'm actually thinking it should be Barry Allen yet again. Now hear me out. Barry's origins were drafted again for Flash Rebirth. They were tweaked for Flashpoint, and then redone for Secret Origins in the New 52. They were tweaked again for the Flashpoint direct-to-video feature, and then again for the CW live-action TV series. In as many years, we've retread and retold Barry's origins, and we're about due for a break and a distillation and crystallization of that into something more perfect for the silver screen. Essentially, they can polish this iterated thing, hopefully to perfection, rather than gambling on an utterly new version of the other Flashes. I don't consider this factor deciding or dispositive at all, but it's just some food for thought. Now, how does the Flash affect Superman? Well, a full-blown speedster means that Superman may not necessarily get that same super speed mitigation powers that we've discussed in our previous episode as a way of distinguishing between the two characters, both able to achieve high speeds. That is, in other words, as we've discussed extensively, Superman is going to cause sonic booms and catastrophic damage if he collides into things at high speed, whereas the Flash has the Speed Force aura to moderate, mitigate, and manage all of those interactions so that we can have a classic speedster on film. As I also mentioned, this is a significantly younger Flash, so we get an opportunity for him to look up to Superman and place Superman in that senior superhero role as an inspiration to the next generation. And that's something uniquely possible in a shared universe. So next up, we have Aquaman starring Jason Momoa. Thank goodness it is finally, finally officially confirmed from the WB's own mouth. Not to say that it hasn't been speculated and quote-unquote confirmed for ages by press outlets like Variety and Deadline, but this is the first time that it comes from a WB press release. Now we see that the world is enormous, not just the hidden Amazons, 
not just the hidden world of magic, but now the world of Atlantis. Now, a weird kind of little thing I just thought I'd mention, it comes to mind, is that Avatar 2 releases December 2016, and it precedes Avatar 3, which is in the same year. One of them is supposedly set largely underwater, and that may set expectations on how oceanic action should come to life. Sort of how the Lord of the Rings completely set the bar for epic fantasy warfare. Nonetheless, the WB is showing confidence in Aquaman. We're looking at a character who, historically, people have continued to say is a joke. And they are giving him a feature film to show Aquaman is no joke. If you've enjoyed the Peter David series, if you've enjoyed the Justice League version of him, you know Aquaman is no joke. And it's about time that the Super Friends myth fades into obscurity in the face of a feature film. Now, if we follow our pattern of light and dark, Aquaman is sandwiched between The Flash and Shazam. That suggests that it will be a darker film, which fits with our understanding of the modern Aquaman. Likewise, if we follow our pattern of small and big stories, Aquaman may be implicating the globe, or at least the entire undersea nation of Atlantis, when you compare that to merely Central, Keystone, or Fawcett cities. Again, what does this mean for Superman? Well, like with the Amazons, Superman's isolation and loneliness is addressed by a planet populated by the extraordinary, like himself. Whatever angst is attached to the isolation that he had as a youth can be cast off as he embraces the DCCU Earth for the crazy place that it is and where he fits perfectly within it. By the time we get to Aquaman, we'll have a Superman who most closely mirrors the one that we have seen in the modern comics in a shared universe, and I can't wait. It's something that no solo Superman film could truly grasp or achieve by itself. And when you want to see that Superman is the first among equals, he needs to have a pantheon by his side for you to see why he is the first amongst equals. So as we mentioned, what follows Aquaman is Shazam, starring Dwayne Johnson, better known as The Rock, as Black Adam. Shazam is unrepentantly magical, but we've already had magic introduced into this universe via Wonder Woman and probably Aquaman, and it's still a little unclear whether this is part of the universe, particularly since another production company is making it. If we use the New 52 as a template, we know that they tried to attach Shazam to the Justice League as a feature within the comics, so that there would be that sort of mental association. When they brought that story to life in animation, they had Shazam as one of the members of the team. But to me, and for film, we're talking about another flying brick. And if we've got Black Adam in this story too, that's two flying bricks. Now, superficially, it may seem like a rehash of Man of Steel's conclusion, but this is a great opportunity for DC to show why their character roster is so deep and varied, even when their heroes seem superficially similar. You've got to remember at the peak of the DCU, there were whole families of characters that were superficially similar, and yet that universe was rich and alive and meaningful. As I said, the biggest question mark is how or whether this is going to relate to the DCCU as a whole. If it does, that creates an interesting precedent where Warner Brothers is able to farm out some of its films to other production companies. One of the big advantages that Marvel has in terms of mindshare and an unintentional 
benefit of the fact that they went bankrupt and had to license out their movie properties is the fact that they have other studios churning out Marvel properties. That means that in just in terms of quantity and density, overall, you're seeing more Marvel properties brought to the screen every year than any other comic book company. Well, here's the interesting thing. If Shazam is supposed to be a DCCU film and the WB is okay with New Line doing it, the WB may farm out more of these films, more of these characters, and we might have an arms race where the WB is actually able to keep up with Marvel within itself without losing the rights. And consider how amazing that is when Marvel has to struggle with the fact, well, maybe we can't have Spider-Man in our film without paying through the nose for it. Unfortunately, we can't have the X-Men interact with the Avengers. Well, DC won't have that restriction if this experiment works and if that's where they're going with that. And even if they're not, then we're no worse off, right? In other words, if New Line is creating Shazam to be a separate film in a separate universe, then fine. We're still getting, at the end of the day, a DC property, even if it's not in the DCCU proper. I don't have a problem with that when I'm watching a Spider-Man film or an X-Men film. I still get to get my Spider-Man fix or my X-Men fix. So even if Captain Marvel, or I'm sorry, Shazam, isn't playing into the DCCU proper, the big red cheese gets to be on film. And so I'm really pulling for this to work so that we get to see a wider breadth and depth and number of DC characters brought to life. Now, incidentally, it's not terribly relevant, but my mind always goes here anytime I talk about Shazam. This is one of the examples that I always use to show the evolution of copyright law over the years in America. Back in 19... 19- 48, Captain Marvel was found to be, by a court of law, infringing on Superman. But today, there are dozens of characters with comparable similarities that would not be considered infringing today. Without getting into an entire IP law class, that alone illustrates how much copyright law in the area of comics has changed over the course of 60 years. Now, an interesting question is, why is the release date so far out? Well, one is that they are still planning it out, but nonetheless, the announcement of the casting and the date exhibit a degree of confidence. All right, next up, we have Justice League Part 2. Now, that far out, the calendar, as we see so far, is relatively clean of other films that are explicitly named. We have to wonder if there's going to be an overarching story between the films. That's something that has, of course, worked. We've seen it in Star Wars, Harry Potter, The Matrix, Lord of the Rings, and so on. They all suggest that the audience enjoys seeing serial films that have an ongoing, continuing story. Now, another question that comes to mind is, All the characters that have been listed in the films that we see here, is that the full roster of the League, or will there be more? Thus far, the Magnificent Seven appear to be Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, and Cyborg. So will Shazam be in the League? And what about any of the Suicide Squad members, such as Vixen, who has historically been a hero? We've seen her on a number of Justice League teams, and she rose to particular prominence because of Justice League Unlimited. So will the scope of the League go beyond the seven that worked pretty well for justice league unlimited you'd focus on a particular team or set of characters but there was all these other characters in the background giving a sense of a larger 
bigger universe. As I mentioned when we talked about Suicide Squad, it seems to suggest that there is a larger world of metahumans out there. So we could play it like the seven are the world's only, but maybe they're the world's finest. As I've been repeating over and over again, consider the rise in Superman's stature in the light of the world around him. Traditionally, when Superman is the only hero, his powers can be dialed back, with the exception of the Donner films, which was directed at an audience that was literate in Silver Age Superman. But then, as other heroes got introduced into Superman's world or into his universe, as he interacted more and more with them, Superman's powers would rapidly begin to amp up and ramp up. So in this film universe, the more heroes we have out there, the more Superman's stature has to rise accordingly. And I think that's a great thing to get him to that sort of paragon status that Superman fans wanted to see but didn't see in Man of Steel. That arc of going from the rookie to the seasoned paragon that everybody looks up to, that's a meaningful arc. That's something that's compelling to audiences, and it's one of the reasons that I really enjoy the Wally West arc, and I'm excited that we may get it in the DC Cinematic Universe. So after the culmination of a giant event film, where do we go from there? Well, why not to a palate cleanser? Why not to something that's a little oddball, but which will benefit from a boost from that giant epic thing that everybody enjoyed and they just want to see a little bit more and get a little more insight into the universe. Why not a Cyborg film starring Ray Fisher? Cyborg is the new guy on the roster and he's getting a feature film before many of the other traditional Seventh Men. I know that that can be a sore spot for some people because he's a relative newcomer when being mentioned in the same breath with the Justice League. But you have to consider that this character debuted in 1980. His character will have been four decades old by the time the film comes out. To give you some perspective, his character has been around only six years less than the Wolverine, who is indispensable to the Marvel Universe. And despite being around for so long, despite having that pedigree and those chops, he's still an unknown factor to a lot of people. And that means a film that can surprise people, a film that can take them off guard and which they don't go into loaded with expectation. And we can see how much that benefits a film if you look at something like Guardians, where people went into the film with very little baggage. Now, Cyborg is a character who is clearly super science. As a concept, he's almost necessarily tied to the tech of the time. Today, we've made leaps and bounds in biology, materials, prosthetics, and information technology since his inception in 1980. So it might be interesting if they took a hard sci-fi look at Cyborg rather than a more traditional take. Now, like The Flash, as I mentioned before, he seems to develop his powers after the Man of Steel and is perhaps inspired by Superman to heed the call to public service as a superhero. So again, he may be another notch in Superman's belt showing the stature and the importance of Superman. We know that Ray Fisher has already been cast for Batman v Superman, so we will be well aware of this character by the time we get all the way to Cyborg the film. My main affection for the character comes from his role as a supporting character during Wally's run of The Flash and in Teen Titans. Now initially I had a problem with Cyborg being promoted to the League because it felt forced rather than something that the fans had been clamoring for, but in all honesty, Creators have to try and take risks and push the status quo. Otherwise, all creativity will tend towards stagnation and predictability. We need things 
to shake things up or they'll never change. However you feel about Frank Miller and The Dark Knight Returns, part of the reason it's held in such high regard is because it dared to challenge the status quo and therefore pushed things forward and moved things forward. So for better or worse, their promotion of Cyborg can be a catalyst to similar change and similar progression. All that said, despite being around for as many years as he has, I'm barely familiar with Cyborg except as a team player. I honestly have no idea what a solo Cyborg film would be like. He doesn't slot into those classic archetypes like Wonder Woman with fantasy or Batman for crime fiction, Green Lantern for the cosmic. You can say super science like I've suggested, but Cyborg, from my reckoning, has never really been a hard science character. So if all I take away from him is that he's a team player, maybe you don't fight his team player status. Maybe you don't fight his team player nature, and you use him as a lead into the Titans. One of the major appeals of the X-Men and of Harry Potter's Hogwarts is that ensemble cast of youths. There's something universal about coming of age, about being in school and having your crowd and being a young person. Prior to New 52, the DCU had teen teams in spades. Marvel had them too, but those have kind of faded as well. If Cyborg is a lead-in to the Teen Titans or the Titans, we may see a youth-oriented superhero film from DC long before we ever see something like The Runaways from Marvel. But like I said, the angle on Cyborg is the super science, and as we've discussed in prior episodes, Kryptonian tech may be something that jumpstarts human technology, and Cyborg may represent the pinnacle of human technology, putting it nearly on par with Kryptonian. If Cyborg is a product of Kryptonian technology, either directly or indirectly, Superman may feel a special kinship or responsibility for Cyborg. And so that's another possible interesting relationship that could develop between a mentor and a mentee, a senior seasoned Paragon superhero and a rookie. And again, it shows that arc where you have a young hero mentored by an older one, perhaps Superman being somewhat mentored by Batman and then coming into his own as a hero and mentoring the next generation of Flash and Cyborg. That progression of time, that progression of character, that arc really helps to give a universe life, breath, and depth and a sense of meaning and progression. You aren't simply circling the drain, reverting to status quo at the end of every film, but instead moving forward. And again, that's one of the reasons I love that Wally West flash run. You started off with a confused teen who never felt that he could live up to the shadow of his mentor, to somebody who eventually surpasses his mentor, comes into his own, and starts training the next generation. There's something incredibly compelling about that, and it's something that you can see the possibility of in the DCCU, whereas in the Marvel Universe, which I do enjoy and I love, but all this hype about the Marvel Civil War in the back of many people's minds is how will everything revert back to the status quo after Civil War? In other words, if Tony and Steve are divided and in conflict, how do we bring them back together to fight Thanos and the next galactic threat? So in that sense, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is trying to tend back towards that status quo. Whereas with the DCCU, granted it's entirely my speculation, it looks like there's the possibility for progression, for things to be passed on and moved on. One great example of this is the fact 
that Batman is older. And if we are going to have future standalone Batman films, it's quite possible that the mantle of the bat passes, which would be a radical departure from all renditions of Batman in the past, but imagine how fresh that would be on film. So last up, we have the Green Lantern, and supposedly, according to the conference, it's going to be a reboot, and it opens up the cosmic DCCU. We already have a taste of that in Man of Steel, how that opens up the fact that there are extraterrestrials, there are alien worlds, they aren't alone in the universe, but the Green Lantern really opens up the fact that it's a living universe out there, not just dead planets and civilizations, but a whole world of living, active extraterrestrials. So part of that question is, will the Green Lanterns or the Green Lantern Corps be part of the DCCU in the League films prior, or do we open it up later at this point? I have a sort of controversial position here as to whether the Corps will be a part of the team. In recent years, the core has become essential to the Green Lantern legend. Being a part of that larger force, that larger reality, is something that gives the Green Lantern texture and makes him more than just another superhero. But the question is whether all that texture is wanted or needed in a coherent or cohesive sealed cinematic universe. With a larger collective universe, you are inevitably going to be confronted by the questions of why heroes aren't appearing to help each other, and there may be questions raised by why the Core and the Guardians of Oa didn't help Krypton, or didn't involve themselves in this or that. I almost wonder if Green Lantern, for the purposes of the cinematic universe, works better where Oa is mostly a distant mystery rather than a fully rendered reality. You get to explore that stuff in the comics because you have a lot of time and you have a lot of room to do it. But with film you have so little screen time, fleshing it out may come at the expense of the singular story you're trying to tell. Maybe. I'm not the biggest Green Lantern fan, so I'm probably not the best person to be talking on this subject. But of course, like with The Flash, we get that same question. Which Green Lantern do you pick? Do you start with Hal Jordan, which would be a retread or a reboot? Do you do Jon Stewart, because people are familiar with the cartoon and it would be a progressive step? Do you use Kyle Rayner? who would fit with the theme of that second generation of superheroes and who does have a lot of interesting character traits. Or perhaps you do Guy Gardner just because it would be funny. Maybe you do all of them. Maybe you do a new one. I didn't cover this with The Flash, but when I say a new one, I know that there are listeners out there that cringe and consider that idea or concept blasphemy. But like I said before, we need things to push boundaries. We need creators to create. If you look at a character like Harley Quinn, there was no tradition of Harley Quinn, and it didn't come out of the ether until somebody decided to shake up the status quo. Instead of making Joker an asexual loner, somebody dared to say, what if Joker had a girlfriend or a henchwoman that was always by his side? What if Joker had a sidekick? And that creative spark created a character that has captured the hearts and minds of so many readers and so many viewers. And we have to give the filmmakers that same freedom and ability to create and spark in us imagination as well. Canon is important, tradition is important, history is important, but at the end of the day, it also is art. And if you completely handcuff the artist's hand to history or continuity or preconceived notions, then there's no way for that art to go anywhere or to grow. The artist has to know 
when to show restraint and when to respect those vaunted values. But as an audience, we have to have a mind that's open enough to go beyond what we have already seen, already digested, and already expect. We have to allow artists to be able to surprise us. So to wrap up, this is a Superman podcast. And the question is, where does Superman and Batman fit into all of this? Well, we know that they'll be in Batman v Superman and Justice League. And the announcement explicitly states that there will be a standalone Superman and standalone Batman films. So these pillars of the DCCU will be more than present. As I've said throughout the podcast, we can already see a through line of how those two will inspire the next generation of heroes, and in Batman's case, possibly pass the torch. A Batman that isn't Bruce Wayne seems like a radical and confronting idea, until you consider the fact that most comic fans pretty much loved it for the window where we had it. Fans of the Nolan trilogy are already primed for the idea of a retired Batman presenting a Robin as the next Batman. Batman Beyond already explored the concept. And, like the DCU prior to the New 52, who's to say that we can't have simultaneous generations? There was a period when Jay, Barry, Wally, and Bart all ran alongside one another. We may not necessarily have to forego Bruce as the Bat, even if we get a new or a second Batman. But then, why not announce Superman and Batman's place in this calendar. Well, part of it might be flexibility, allowing them to move films. But after the incident with Batman v Superman and Captain America 3, and because this was a meeting meant to boost investor confidence, I don't think that that's necessarily it. Rather, I think this is to highlight the depth of DC's roster and the excitement of a slate without Batman and Superman in it. If they announced those films now, we'd already be looking past BVS and quite possibly unfairly turning tentpole films like Cyborg, Shazam, or The Suicide Squad into mere footnotes rather than obscuring the strength of their slate with their marquee characters. The WB has wisely chosen to hold back those announcements and to generate the maximum excitement as needed. Marvel does the same thing with their sequels. Generally, they don't make any official announcements on them until usually around the opening weekend of the sequel's predecessor. By not mentioning Superman or Batman's titles or dates at this time, they are not diminishing Superman. Instead, they're showing supreme confidence in him. They're fearing that he may overshadow the other announcements, and they are so confident that his announcement can be used to boost excitement at a later date at will. They're the world's two biggest heroes for a reason. Another reason that this slate should make you optimistic and happy is that the announcement of future standalone Superman films likely establishes that behind the scenes, Henry Cavill has probably extended his contract with Warner Brothers. As you're more than likely aware, Cavill was contracted for three films. On the slate as presented, that would only cover Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, and Justice League Part 1. Now, perhaps it may cover Justice League Part 2 depending on how cleverly the contracts was written, how they shoot them. Remind me to tell you some stories about the legal ramifications of how the number of films are defined in a casting contract at another time. We're not going to do that now. However, it would not cover another standalone Superman, which was 
in the announcement, and it probably doesn't cover Justice League Part 2, assuming his representation is competent in parsing the contract. So if that's the case, do you think that the WB would go forwards and make this bold announcement without knowing whether they have secured their Superman for Justice League Part 2 and the standalone Superman film? Would they risk getting halfway through this slate, then suddenly being held hostage by Henry Cavill's representation? Do they want a repeat of how Robert Downey Jr. nearly held the Marvel Cinematic Universe hostage? Personally, I don't think so. I think the WB appropriately upped Cavill's compensation and he's agreed to more films. And that is great news for us Superman fans because it means we're getting more and more Superman. Just think, in the span of seven years, we will have likely seen Superman on the silver screen five times, if not more. With that many appearances, we get to see the growth and the change that I've been talking about throughout this podcast. And as we've discussed in prior episodes, we'll get to see that optimistic disposition that reasonably comes from the ending of Man of Steel. All right, I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. So here are some promos for the network and a couple of promos for some fellow shows that I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, the DC Comics Presents Show, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast, The Kara Zerald Podcast, Superman Forever Radio, Superman Lives, Up, Up and Away, Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy Podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Bragg, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Hey everybody, this is Drew from Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. We're new here on the Superman Podcast Network, and we're following the adventures of Superboy in his 1990s comic book and a lot of his crossovers. So if you want to hear more about Superboy and, you know, cool shades, leather jackets, uh, Hawaii, I think he fights Sidearm, uh, he fights uh, Captain Boomerang, and no wait, he works with Captain Boomerang. Anyway, we're available on iTunes and, you know, everywhere else you can get a podcast. So come check us out. This is Mick, and I'm from MickRed.com. I'm launching a new comic podcast starting with Jeff Johns and John Romita Jr.'s run on Superman 32. I'll also be covering the DC Essential graphic novels. Uh, Some I've read before, and many will be new to me. I'll cover those as I read them, 
and I won't reveal any plot details or spoilers until I get to those. Like any Micred production I'm on, the language will be family friendly, so head over to micred.com now and subscribe to Mix Super Comic Cast. That's M I C K R E D.com. Talk to you soon. Alright, welcome back. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff, and if you've stuck with me, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener. I hope you send me some feedback in the comments or by email at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you have a question that you want answered, insights that you want to share, or commentary to make, you can post in our forums for all your like-minded apologists to see, or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. I've actually received a lot of great feedback and a lot of great questions, and I'll definitely be getting to them in a future episode. So if you'll just be patient with me, we'll get to that soon. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son.